0: We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit LeadingSaints.org slash liberating. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through various ways, including this very podcast that you're listening to. I hope you subscribe. Maybe leave us a review while you're at it, and I think you'll enjoy the content you find on this podcast. And then jump on over to LeadingSaints.org, and you'll find thousands of articles dedicated to leadership context as it relates to uh, being a Latter-day Saint. Uh, we have virtual summits that we've done, Check us out on social media, and also a, a weekly newsletter that goes out that has unique content you won't find anywhere else. So a uh, jump into the Leading Saints world. We're glad to have you. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Louis Howarth. Did I say that right, Louis?
1: Yeah, well done. Well done. <laughs> nice.
0: Uh, there's all sorts of tongue twisters in uh, in your background here because you're from Luxembourg in the Nancy, Nancy steak, Nancy? Look at that.
1: Kurt, you're you're basically a local at this point. That's great. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, and tell us, for us uh, ignorant Americans, where is Luxembourg?
1: Yeah. So first off, Luxembourg is a real country. I promise you all that. <laughs> it's in the heart of Europe, nestled between France, Germany, and Belgium. So it's a very small country, part of the EU, the European Union. Um, and interestingly enough, there are three official languages of Luxembourg. So you have Luxembourgish, which again, I promise you is a real language, and then French and German. So on behalf of Luxembourg, I'll say moyen, Bonjour, and Guten Tag, just so everybody is included <laughs> in, in that's awesome. That's awesome. And so yeah, Luxembourg isn't just
0: a city in uh, fantasy novels, right? it's a uh, it's a real thing with real people and uh, real language. so
1: <laughs> yeah. this... and and, and, a, and a little fact for everybody, the capital of Luxembourg is Luxembourg City, so that's an easy one to remember.
0: Oh nice. nice. I can do that. that 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 I can do. So and we were talking before we hit record that it takes about an hour or so to drive across the from north and south, right? And a little yeah, less than an hour, from east to west,
1: exactly about an hour and a half north to south, about an hour uh, east to west. So yeah, it's a pretty small country. That's great. And you're currently serving as the bishop of
0: the Luxembourg First Ward. Yeah, correct, correct. Nice. And uh, how many how many wards are in Luxembourg, and then how many are in your stake? Or how many like groups or branches or whatever?
1: Yeah, so uh, since the 80s, there has been a branch in Luxembourg. Um, my uncle uh, actually moved to Luxembourg and set up the first branch here when he was working for the European Parliament. And then my family came after and, and I was born in Luxembourg in the late 80s. So there's been a branch in Luxembourg for, for all of my young life. And then uh, when I went on my mission around 2010-ish, 2008, 2009, 2010, there was a ward that was created. So the branch was transformed into a ward. And then last year, we were actually able to establish a second branch in Luxembourg focused on Portuguese and Spanish speaking community. Nice.
0: And so what, uh, what language do you speak uh, in your ward? Like it's, officially,
1: Yeah, it's bilingual, so uh, it's it's a mix of French and English. There's a pretty large expat community in Luxembourg, um, because of different international companies who set their headquarters in Luxembourg. So we have a lot of native English speakers and then a lot of native French speakers. So between the two, we we cope and we we get along. Nice. So
0: <laughs> this is going to sound just stupid, but uh, my limited European history knowledge, like. How did, how come Luxembourg just never got gobbled up at some point by one of the surrounding countries?
1: <laughs> it it did. It did by multiple countries, actually. That the city of Luxembourg is built around a gorge. So there's a really big valley that kind of protects most of the city of Luxembourg. So during the medieval ages, it was always a very good kingdom, right? And a very well protected kingdom and fortress that not many could penetrate. So it was always somewhat independent. You know, throughout the years, the Netherlands has owned Luxembourg, Belgium did in World War Two. The Nazis invaded Luxembourg in about 10 minutes and and took over the country. So it has been uh, taken over by different countries. And different countries have taken pieces of Luxembourg. It used to be a little bit bigger. Um, But yeah, after the Second World War, Luxembourg actually became really important for the creation of the European Union. And uh, the European Parliament, Court of Justice, the European Investment Bank all have different headquarters in Luxembourg. So now it's it's a relatively important country for, for a geopolitical perspective, which is pretty cool.
0: That's awesome. And what do you do for work there?
1: Um, I work for a technology company um, who are based in Luxembourg. I work for Amazon. Um, they have a, a pretty substantial headquarters in Luxembourg with, with uh, thousands of employees. So I've nice. worked for them for the last seven and a half years. So do you have two-day shipping there? Uh, we don't believe it or not. There's no fulfillment center in Luxembourg. We do a lot of the work behind the scenes, but we have to go to to Amazon.de for Germany, fr for France, or be for Belgium. So we're kind of you know scoping around to get anything, which is a shame. Uh, I, but
0: I suddenly it's feel okay. so patriotic. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, so uh, and then uh, you say you were born there, born and raised there.
1: Yeah, born and raised in Luxembourg to an English-speaking family. So my family are from England and Ireland originally. My dad worked for the European Parliament, which is why my family moved to Luxembourg. Um, But yeah, I I grew up in Luxembourg, lived there till I was 17 when I went over to, to BYU to go study.
0: Okay, BYU Provo?
1: BYU Provo. Yeah. I, I lived in the complete opposite of what I imagined, you know, the Utah Mormon lifestyle to be living in Luxembourg. So <laughs> I wanted to to experience the complete polar opposite to my, my childhood and see what that gave me. And it was a cool experience.
0: Yeah. And we think Luxembourg's strange and you think uh Utah's strange. So that's <laughs> yeah, all <right>. pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh served a mission?
1: served a mission in Germany. I was originally called to the Germany Homburg Mission and about halfway through my mission that mission was uh merged with the Berlin Mission and the Frankfurt Mission, so I ended up in the Berlin Mission for the second half of my mission.
0: Nice. And so what was your your language capacity like when you went on a mission? Did you already speak German? Did your was your English as good as it is now
1: or Yeah. So I I grew up speaking English. So English is my native language. Um, I learned French from the age of six and I I speak fluent French. I started to learn German from the age of 11, but being brought up English, there was always a, a patriotism towards England versus Germany. So I was kind of reluctant to learn German. I didn't do great in school. When I submitted my mission papers, I wrote down that I learned German for four years because that was the truth. And I guess the brethren were inspired to send me to Germany and to not send me to the Provo MTC, but to send me to the Preston MTC, which was a a 10 day crash course in a German speaking district. So I went in not really speaking much German that could get me through. Um, But I I promise you if any, anyone is about to leave on a mission, the gift of tongues is real. And I am a witness of that. So yeah, I went to Germany after 10 days and was able to teach from the first day.
0: And then, You also grew up just learning French just because of the culture, right?
1: And school. So I went to a pretty unique school system that's set up for children of people who work for the European institutions. So every grade had 25 different nationality sections. So you had a Danish section, a Swedish section, Italian section, Swedish. you know, so you had all the different sections where you did classes like you know literature or maths in your native language and then for classes like history or geography or economics you would do that in your second language which in my case was french with other children who had the same second language so mm-hmm. they taught you the language but then immersed you in the language to do other courses which which sped up obviously your ability to speak
0: yeah yeah that's cool and we're seeing more and more at least in utah more and more of these immersion programs where kids are learning different languages and it's pretty cool you know it's a great yeah. way to to learn a language because as an adult i don't <laughs> i don't want to learn another language i'm good
1: <laughs> yeah. so. it's very much synchro swim that's for sure
0: and so what is the the is that the name is is that just like a Luxembourgish? so yeah. is that just like some fun traditional language or is there actually is it actually used in day-to-day life
1: yeah, it's, it's definitely used. It used to be more of a dialect, and then it was turned into an official language. Um, if you go to the local school system, which I did not, but my children have done it, um, they learn Luxembourgish. So it's it's very much taught from a young age. And typically, the first few years of school will be in Luxembourgish, and then you'll learn German and French on top of that. Most people in, in Luxembourg come from a Portuguese or Spanish background as well. There's about 30 40% of the population who come from either Portugal or Spain. So they'll speak Italian, Spanish, or Portuguese on top of that, And then English is always learned. So I, I joke that to work at McDonald's in Luxembourg, you need to learn at least six or seven languages. And that's not even false. Like literally, <laughs> most people in Luxembourg will speak three or four languages and, and no one even bats an eyelid. Yeah.
0: So I just wonder, like, how does your brain work? Like, as far as <laughs> thinking, like, I, I've learned Spanish from my mission. So I sort of understand that dual language, you know, the dichotomy. But I mean, yeah. are you only thinking in English? Or do you just sort of just thinking.
1: Yeah, for, for myself, I speak in English. When I was in Germany on my mission, I, I caught myself dreaming in German and thinking in German. So I had to quickly yeah. repent and change that back to English. <laughs> but um, yeah, w- w- when, I, when I speak in French, I think in French. When I when I speak German, I think in German. But when I'm just by myself, I'm thinking in English. <laughs>
0: That's just crazy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Anything else? Like, Just tell us about the church. Give us a crash course on what the church is like in Luxembourg. If yeah. Anything you haven't mentioned.
1: It's changed a bunch. So Luxembourg is a little unique because the ward boundaries actually go into three different countries. So you have the whole country of Luxembourg. You then have about the same geographic size of the country of Luxembourg in Belgium that belongs to the ward boundaries. And then a piece of France as well, because we're part of the the French Nazi stake. So Luxembourg as a ward, it goes into three countries, which is pretty unique. I'm not sure if there's any other ward that (laughs) goes into three countries or not, but it means that especially in COVID, when borders were shut across Europe, it meant that we physically couldn't go to members and we couldn't help them and they couldn't come to church and stuff like that. So probably for the first time, we saw the reality of what that actually looked like. Um, But membership in Luxembourg has been um, relatively small for the first couple decades. decades when the church was being built up in the 80s and the 90s, Convert Baptist. Maybe one or two a year, if, if you were lucky. Um, and then, as I mentioned, over the past 15 years or so, a lot of expats have started to come in. We've had tremendous success, especially within the, the Portuguese and Spanish-speaking communities in Luxembourg, hence the creation of the branch recently. So, yeah, there's, there's been a ton of changes over the past 10 or 15 years, which has been really, really cool to see and to be part of.
0: Nice. Uh, is Frankfurt the closest temple?
1: Uh, it is to Luxembourg, yeah. So the, the Nazi France stake belongs to the Paris temple, but we got an exception and we belong to the Frankfurt temple. So we, we always like to do things a bit different in Luxembourg. So, yeah.
0: Nice. Well, the way President nelson has gone, we wouldn't be shocked if a Luxembourg temple was announced, right? I mean, that'd be hey, pretty cool.
1: You heard it here first. We're, we're, we're right. praying for that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So just tell me about your uh, being called as a bishop. I mean, what, uh, is there a story behind that?
1: Um, interesting actually. So I, I travel a lot for work. Um, and I remember being in Las Vegas in February of the year that I was called to be Bishop. And I was called, I think it was in May or June. So a few months after that. And I remember, um, I, I set a goal that year whenever I traveled to a major city that I would make an effort to go to the temple. Cause typically that's where the temples are. And I remember being in Vegas for a, a convention with my work and um there was another colleague who was also a member of the church so we worked together to wake up early one morning and take an uber and to go to the the local temple and i remember sitting in uh the temple doing an endowment session i remember all of a sudden a face came into my head um and i remember thinking okay that's that's an interesting person to be thinking about and then a second face came into my head and and again i accepted it, but, but I was questioning you know, what, what this was. And then a third face came to my head. So three different men in my ward came to my head in the middle of, of the session in the temple. I, I found that a bit peculiar, but I, I remember the feeling being very strong that these were three men that um, I was going to be working with. And um, I remember nodding that somewhere in my head as, you know, this is something I shouldn't be forgetting. And a few months later, a stake president invites me for an interview at the at the church in Luxembourg, and he extends the calling of a bishop. And, you know, as soon as the words came out of his mouth, these three brothers' um, faces came to my head again. And the stake president uh, said, you know, look, I'm going to give you a couple minutes. Go and, go and pray and, and decide who th- your counselor should be. And it was one of those moments where I I already knew and the interesting thing for me was i had three names right and obviously you have two counselors in the bishopric um so the first two were the ones that i felt prompted to share but a couple years into being bishop we created the second branch in luxembourg and that counselor was then called as branch president so his replacement was a very easy pick because it was the third face that had come into my mind those years earlier so you know it I, I've listened to several podcasts that, that you've done with Leading Saints recently about aspiring and, and those types of topics, right? And one one of the the guests that you had on the podcast talked about the Lord preparing you and how as long as we're aspiring to be worthy to serve God, that's the right type of aspiring that we should be yeah. having. That was one of those experiences for me where the Lord was teaching me trust and He was also preparing me so that in the moment, I didn't need to worry or fear. I was ready with, with the information that I needed.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and then, outside of you know some of the just the church in general that you've talked about, how would you describe the demographics of your ward? Like you said, there's maybe some languages, some uh, expats, and whatnot. So,
1: yeah, I think before the the split, before the creation of the branch, the demographics were crazy varied. So you had, you know, the top executives coming over from a very, very wealthy, prominent background in the U S to Luxembourg, all the way down to the humble cleaning lady, immigrant who had just come to Luxembourg and is trying to find any Euro uh, that, that, that they could find. So it was a very, vast demographic in terms of the ward the, the the last time i counted we had 19 different languages in the ward on a regular 19? basis 19 different languages <laughs> from swedish to spanish to swahili we, we have a family that that's native languages swahili so you know <laughs> obviously we try and find the common languages and we translate where we can um, but one of our goals was very much to have a church where the gospel is taught in native tongue, right? Where you can experience the gospel in your native language. And that's part of the reason why we, why we split the ward and created the branch in order to enable that to happen. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I remember the ward council that we had before the branch was, um, was created i literally felt like we were in the un because we had people from australia the uk canada us colombia uh, dominican republic you know basically every every calling and ward council represented not just a different country but a different continent as well so you know trying to bring those cultures together to come to a consensus and making a decision the spirit is great, but culture certainly blocks that sometimes, right? And, and to the point where we would need to have some form of simultaneous translation during ward council, you know? So you're trying to have a conversation. Translation's probably going to be 5, 10, 15 seconds delayed. It, it creates a lot of difficulties, right? So that type of structure, it's, it's a great experience, and you learn a lot about empathy and, and working with people at, at different levels, different backgrounds, but it's, it's hard. And, and, uh, it's something that has, <laughs> that has shaped what the ward looks like today, but it, it's, it's something that you need to work for.
0: Yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, it's one thing, you know, you see these when maybe a, an apostle comes and there needs to be a, 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 interpreter, right. That's standing there and maybe makes their talk go longer. But, and that's a very, like, I'm speaking to a congregation, but when it's a, a council setting where you want a lot of dialogue going, cause that's where, you know, the revelation is hidden. Uh, yeah man, what a complex situation
1: it's it's hard, and like we we went through lots of different things, right because growing up in the branch of Luxembourg they would always translate at the pulpit. So you would say something in one language and the translator would translate it, right. Kind of as, as you're mentioning with apostles visiting different places, it's, it's a pretty poor experience for the speaker to have to stop after every sentence, right. When they're trying to build up momentum and get to the climax of a story, it, it, in all honesty, it detracts a little bit from the spirit. So part of my goal when I was called as Bishop was to allow people to speak, especially give talks or lessons in their native language. So a lot of Sundays we would have uh, headsets and we would have you know either French, Spanish Portuguese English one, three of those four depending on who the speaker was would be translated simultaneously into headsets for people sitting down so you know it, it felt like general Conference where you had to have all of that in place you need amazing skills and and just because you speak another language it doesn't mean you're a good translator in that language right because to translate it's a skill to listen and to speak at the same time yeah right. and and that's a hard skill. It takes a lot of practice to get. So, yeah, that there have been amazing members who have had many gifts brought to them through the Spirit in order to enable people to hear the gospel in their native language and And what a blessing that has been.
0: yeah, and, and this I assume is their calling to be a translator.
1: Uh, yeah, we we did actually set people apart for that because of how difficult it was. So it, it probably wasn't their only calling, you know. Yeah. Just the nat- the nature of the ward, people need to have a couple of callings. But it was it was definitely one that we set people apart for. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then what are the general numbers of of your ward, and as far as showing up to sacrament meeting and whatnot.
1: Yeah, so it's it's been again amazing growth. Growing up, it was a branch of fifteen, twenty people, right? Where we had missionaries serving as branch presidents sometimes just because there wasn't a brother locally who could do it. Um, when it was turned into a ward, it was around 100, 110 or so active on a Sunday um, before COVID and before we we created the branch, we were getting two hundred and twenty people, right? We had in in the two years prior to COVID, we had around fifty baptisms, which is just unheard of, right? It's unheard of for Europe in general, but for a country that had had one or two baptisms a year for decades, um, it was it was a sign that the Lord was preparing us for something, and that we were in a position that he could trust us to to do that. So before covid we were about two twenty when the branch mm. was created and and the ward is now separate from the branch, we're seeing you know a good hundred and fifty people depending on who's watching it online versus who's in person, and the branch is somewhere between sixty and eighty so both healthy sizes that can show a lot of great growth moving forward. yeah, what
0: about with the ministering assignments? Uh, what's the I mean, uh, How is that organized or any unique uh, approaches you have to take with ministry?
1: It's it's a very confusing matrix, right? So there's (laughs) a logical aspect to it and a spiritual aspect to it. So you have geography, you have languages... Um, and then you just have seniority or, or experience in the church, right? Because there's a ton of new converts and first generation members in the ward. So you can, you can take the approach of let's group people together geographically. So those in Belgium, those in France, those in the North, those in the South, but then you, you have to also cater to the language because having a Portuguese speaking brother visit someone who's English speaking and, and doesn't speak the language, that's a hard person to minister to sometimes. So it's a mix of everything. It's not perfect. Um, but it it works sometimes, right? I think as as most places in the in the church, it's not a perfect science. Um, but for those who love, they'll do. And I've seen amazing examples of people who don't speak a lick of another language, but they just know how to show love. And you see very quickly what the true spirit of ministering is right it's not needing to prepare a, an hour long lesson on the most complex gospel doctrines but it's simply being there and showing the love and and that's that's at the core of what ministering should be today with the change yeah
0: yeah that's great i'm curious like do you you know there's obviously various uh, points that influence who we call to what positions right obviously we want to do so under the inspiration and of of the keys and the authority that we have but uh, do you kind of feel like as you're looking for an elders corn presidency or whatnot like are there certain language requirements that you that are like a, a must
1: yeah i i've seen different leaders take different approaches there um and of course, logically, it makes sense that you need people who can communicate with at least, you know, the, the majority of the people in their quorum or their, their group, right? Um, I've learned I've learned that the Lord qualifies who he wants to call. And within a presidency, generally, you can have the right mix of languages, but we don't call people because of the language that they speak. Right. And, and it's important for me to, to separate that because otherwise it almost turns into a job interview, you know, like, give me your CV, what's your skills, what's your language set. And, and I think that detracts from what the Lord is trying to do with his work. So it's, it's a difficult one. And and sometimes the balance isn't right. And you feel that and, you know, changes are made over time and that's okay. we're, We're not perfect, but you know, I, I try not to have a prerequisite in my mind in terms of what I'm looking for in a leader. I try and trust the Lord with that. Um, and, and in particular, the year leading up to the creation of the branch, uh, Portuguese and Spanish speaking, it was really clear to me that we needed to put a lot of these brothers and sisters who would most likely be called into this branch into leadership positions, that they needed to be trained and learn how to be leaders because they're building a branch from scratch. So that was one moment where it was really clear the types of of people the Lord wanted us to call. And it was a lot of faith because at that time, we didn't know the branch was getting created for sure. It was in the planning and and we were praying for it and thinking about it. Um, But again, the Lord called exactly who he needed to prepare. And when that branch was created, the vast majority of the people that we had been working with and training and and learning together were called into leadership positions and could go from day one you know and that was that was a really cool moment to be able to see that that come to fruition you don't usually get to see that in the church too often but that was one moment where you could see the lord had planted seeds he had orchestrated exactly what he wanted to and this was the end result that he was aiming for
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. All right. So as we typically do with these, how I lead interviews, I had you prepare a few uh, principles to discuss, and typically I'm getting close to wrapping up, but there's so many, uh, so many questions with uh, your unique experience where you're at in the kingdom of God. So that's right though. So we'll just, let's jump into these. The first one is the importance of setting up a structure. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Again, looking at the growth of the church in Luxembourg, um, for a long time, it was a branch. And anybody who's who's lived in a branch before, um, being in a branch is a lot like being in a startup, right? You get a bit bootstrappy, you try and figure things out, you have people wearing multiple hats, and it's more about getting it done versus getting it done the right way, right? And when I was called as bishop, the ward had existed for a little while, but it was in a, in a difficult state where... The building that we had originally was meant for a very small group. And it got to the point where it was actually illegal for us to meet in this building just because we didn't meet fire and safety regulations. There were too many people and not enough exits. So the stake president at the time took the decision to not renew the, uh, the lease in order to force the church to find us a better place because there was a bit of back and forth there. So we left that building and we ended up being in a hotel for about two or three years. So every Sunday we would bring our portable church <laughs> on wheels, and we would we would rent out a few rooms and a few conference rooms in a hotel, and we would meet there each Sunday. It was a very interesting experience for all the guests of the hotel who would see you know a hundred uh, members of the church trampling in in white shirts and ties and singing at nine thirty in the morning. I'm sure they didn't appreciate that too much. <laughs> but you know, in in that type of setting, how difficult would that have been for the bishop at the time, the leaders at the time to do anything? You know, activities and interviews and all that kind of stuff that you take for granted just weren't really possible because there wasn't even a physical building to be meeting in. So, you know, moving from that, we finally get a building and I'm called as bishop um, within the next year of having that building again. So there was a ton of structure that just wasn't in place. And it was very much my focus for that first year to set up youth programs that worked and to make sure that we had, you know, primary activity days and all of these things that if you're in a place like Utah, California, Idaho, Arizona, where the church has roots and it has people who have been there for a long time. Again, I think we take those for granted in a place where there wasn't even a building where most of the members have joined the church in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, most of them didn't grow up learning primary songs. You need to create that space where they can then learn from. Otherwise it turns into chaos. So, you know, the, the first job I had as a 17-year-old kid finished high school. I had a great boss who taught me probably the most important lesson of my life. He said, Lewis, the three secrets to business are communication, communication, communication. Right. So setting up that structure and and trying to find out a way to work over communicating was really key for me and i over indexed on that where google docs became the go-to for every bishopric meeting for every ward council meeting right and it was saved in a folder shared with everyone so everyone had access to it they knew what we were doing they knew what the focus was they knew what the the agenda points were and the action items for the next time so google docs has become really key to helping with that communication we have a ward council WhatsApp group and a bishopric WhatsApp group so that we can quickly communicate and talk with each other when we need to. Um, We use Facebook pretty religiously as a ward in order to make sure that things can be communicated quickly. In addition to um, the send a message message, tool, which is in LCR as well, that you can you know, choose the yep. group or quorum that you're, you're sending a message to. So setting up that structure, which for many members was very new, and then you know, putting kind of as that first layer, very open, very transparent communication was really key in those early days. And, and maybe changing the mentality a little bit from being a branch to being a functional ward. Right, and that is a mental shift. Even for members who have maybe been in Luxembourg for a long time, you get used to a certain way of working, right? And and when we try then and go to that next level, and we put in a structure in order to allow more people to experience the gospel and to enjoy it and to, to to experience it maybe in a different way. It can sometimes become a point of conflict because it's change and change is always difficult, even if it's good change or change for the right reasons. Um, but that that was really important and that was a big focus for the first year.
0: Yeah. So help us to give maybe give us an example as far as setting up this structure, like what that actually looked like. Cause like you said, we take it for granted here that uh, yeah, there's just always this somebody somebody somewhere knows what to do and we just sort of fall on that mold and that tradition. So what what specifically is an example of how that looked setting up that structure?
1: Yeah. So a couple of the basic ones were with the youth. So having a weekly youth activity in in the Nazi steak is actually pretty rare. There's only one or two other units in the entire stake. There's 11 wards and branches in the Nazi stake who have regular youth activities, partly because of a lack of youth, right? So you don't necessarily have the numbers and partly because um, people grow up in a different way with different expectations. When I grew up in Luxembourg as a young man, um, for many years, I was the only active young man. And I remember when I was 12 years old, leaving primary, going to young men's, there actually wasn't a young men's program at the time. So I went to Elders Corps (laughs) and I stayed there for a little while. And then eventually they called a young men's president. But I remember having a young men's president at one point who understood the principle of having a program for a youth, right? Like a whole youth is worth a whole program. And I remember... Going to the church, the small church building at the time in the middle of the week, and it would just be me and him, and he would take me to McDonald's and we'd get a burger and and we would just have a good chat and you know for me i I didn't grow up with a, a dad uh, who was present. My parents uh, got separated and divorced when I was a kid and and my dad's not an active member of the church. So I'm sure that brother maybe didn't realize the impact that he had in a young Lewis growing up and trying to figure out what what I wanted to do in my life. But I tell you those McDonald's conversations were some of the most impactful ones as a young man trying to understand my relationship with God. So I loved that principle as a youth that I was worth somebody's time and Trying to mimic that in the war today, where we actually have quite a lot of youth, which is amazing. It's been part of the growth of Luxembourg. Um, but making sure that each one of those youth understood their value. And a part a, a part of the way that we can show that is by time commitment and by having programs that are worth it. And and that they can see we're putting the effort in. And again, I lived in Utah for a while. I went to a ward when I was married and I was called into the Young Men's Presidency in that ward. And I remember, um, as a presidency, we would be kicking ourselves to try and make good activities every week and stuff like that. And I remember sometimes there was an attitude with some of the youth that was very expectant, right? Like, yeah, sure, whatever. This is an activity. And there wasn't always a huge amount of gratitude. I remember thinking to myself, holy smokes, if I had a 10th of this as a young man, it would have been the greatest experience of my life, you know? So it's the balance between making sure you have the right programs, the right dedication, the right time commit, but you're still helping people stay humble and grateful for what they're doing. And that's the balance we're trying fit. So, the youth is one example of, of putting that culture, putting that structure in place. Others have been with the changes recently, right? having Elders Quorum and Relief Society take a much stronger role with missionary work and family history. That's a worldwide change and I'm sure that each ward is, has tried to figure that out. I think part of the struggle for us has been teaching counsellors to become leaders right where historically the mentality was I'm second counselor I'm all good you know I can chill in the back but now we're saying no you're you're in charge of one of the most important organizations in the church you know this is this is key to what god is trying to build in this country so that's been that's been a learning experience that hasn't been easy and it's definitely still ongoing but those are the things where putting Structural expectations and putting an organization in place is what we have found to be the role of the bishopric, right? To kind of give that vision to then allow people to act within that vision instead of having to create everything themselves. That's probably been the biggest value that we've felt as a bishopric.
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, next principle is different seasons for different focuses and goals.
1: Yeah, so I, I've touched on this, right, where the first year of being a bishop was very much about setting up the structure. The second year was very much around preparing leaders who were going to move into the branch. This third year that that we're in right now has been very much around preparedness coming off the back of a COVID pandemic. Um, last week, I'm not sure if, if you read, but there were terrible floods in Germany, Belgium, and Luxembourg with, with really heavy rainfall. Hundreds of people have died. And several members of our ward experienced some pretty bad damage because Of the flooding. One one member's family's whole house was flooded on on the ground floor. Um, So that preparedness goal of this year has been really important. But two years ago, it wasn't an important one, you know? So as a leader, it's about understanding where your ward is at and what will help them get to that next level. Uh, So, some advice that my stake president gave me uh, within a couple months of being called as a bishop was uh, Lewis, make sure that you're not expecting people to be a 10 when they're a three, you know? Understand where people are at. And if someone's at a three, help them become a four. Don't force them to become a 10. Mm -hmm. And I love that principle. And it's something that has helped shape me and teach me more empathy in terms of of helping somebody progress from where they're standing, right? To quote Elder Uchtdorf. And I think um, for us this year, it's been about understanding where we can help people grow and help them get to the next level. So most of the year has been stuck in a Zoom church and and virtual meetings, right? We're, we're now back to being in live and we now have second hour, which is amazing. Um, but we made the decision early this year to have monthly firesides around a preparedness theme. So we called a preparedness committee and they gave 12 different themes that they were going to cover and they've planned different activities. And it's been a really cool way to bring people together, even in a virtual sense for something other than just sacrament meeting and to try and give people different outlets and opportunities to learn and to grow. So understanding what the needs are today is really, really important. And to help people understand what that next step is in their lives. It's obviously different for each person, but as a ward, there needs to be some type of focus that can drive a lot of the work that everybody is doing. So that that for me has been a really good one.
0: Wow, I, I really like, the, like that and appreciate that because when we contrast that to maybe our professional lives and when we hire people to work for us or people we work, we typically aim to hire maybe an eight or nine, maybe we'll settle for a seven, you know, depending on the the position that's being filled and the skill set need and whatnot. And then we sort of expect them to give that level of service. And then we go to the church and we're just only have the people we can work with. And so if we expect a, seven, eight or nine person, they're simply at a three. It just sets yourself up for deep disappointment, frustration. Um, you know, you violate trust and because, you know, you, you get, there's like this cognitive dissonance as far as who they, who you think they are and what you think they should be able to do. And, and then it just turns into a mess. Right. And so see meet people where they're at.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard to have the spirit when you're frustrated all the time, you know, yeah. and, and as a bishop, it's important that you're showing love and you're not showing bureaucracy or, or forcing a behavior pattern. You know, the, the handbook is clear that the role of leaders is to help people feel the love of God. right? That's our role as a leader. And you can't do that when every conversation is a conversation of disappointment where somebody didn't live up to expectations. Now, it it definitely can be warranted, right? Sometimes as a leader, you do need to speak openly and transparently and say, Hey, like you agreed to doing this, what happened? And those conversations are good and healthy and and we need to have those, but it shouldn't be the majority, right? That shouldn't be the norm. Um, and, And just maybe one more point, right? Along the different seasons call for different focuses. I've certainly gave a test. uh, I've gained a testimony that God prepares you for what that next season looks like. And he puts in different planters to help you prepare for what that next season is. I remember you know, A year and a half ago, we had a relatively high number of welfare requests coming into Luxembourg with typically people not living in Luxembourg, but living in Belgium and France where um, they were either refugees or asylum seekers or people who were just a little bit down and out and, and lost a job or something. And our welfare um, bill, or our welfare budget was going pretty high. And I remember praying about this a lot, and I made the decision to start a bishop storehouse. Now, again, for most people in North America, that terminology is pretty common. In Europe, that doesn't exist. You know that that notion doesn't even get translated into some languages because it just doesn't exist. and and my interpretation of a bishop storehouse is in in one of the rooms in my garage, we have a bunch of shells with food and clothes and appliances and, and stuff that has either been donated or have been funded by other people, or some of it has been funded by church welfare. But it put us in a position where typically someone would have a welfare need. Maybe they need food. We would need to then work with Elders Corn Relief Society, go and evaluate it. They would have to go and ask someone to buy food. It would cost a lot of money. It'd be delivered. It was a whole you know week long process where the need was pretty urgent, and we haven't been able to respond to that time. Where now. With Bishop Storehouse, we're able to do it within 24 hours, you know. And and my stake president jokes and calls it the illegal Bishop Storehouse because it's not an official one from the church. But man, has it been a blessing in terms of of budget, first of all. But then in our ability to meet urgent needs, it's been amazing. And even this past week with all the flooding, we were able to donate, you know, bags, tens of bags of clothes for children to families who suddenly find themselves without a home, without clothes. And and we were able to respond faster than most charitable organizations in the country of Luxembourg so those are really cool opportunities for us to also show the power of the church and these principles of being ready and being prepared and it's been really cool to see how the Lord prepared that almost a year in advance of of when we've actually needed it this year nice so
0: you know in the early uh, 2000s President Hinckley created these small temples maybe we need a instigate small bishop storehouses and yeah. uh, and we can maybe really make a difference there so if i had a, a red phone that went to downtown salt lake in my office <laughs> that one i would definitely pick up that, that was my up.
1: hope for today karen disappointed <laughs> well, <in.
0: laughs> it's on facebook so i'm sure they'll see it so, um anyways let's uh let's move on here that the next principle is uh, don't get in the way
1: yeah uh, this is one I've learned the hard way as a as a learning bishop um you know I was called to be bishop when I was in my late 20s and um, the Lord qualifies those who he calls and I think that's the journey of serving right is to figure out what you're doing and I'm somebody who likes things done the right way and kind of going into the a leader who is you know a three we shouldn't be forcing them to be a 10 I've had to learn, what it means when a ward officer is apart with priesthood power, right? right? Where a Relief Society president has hands placed on her head, is given priesthood power and stewardship for her organization. Right? What's the balance between me as a bishop stepping in and me as a bishop stepping back in order to allow that person to run the organization that they feel the way that they feel they need to? And, and I haven't been perfect. Any of my uh, former ward council members can testify to that if they're listening to this. Um, but it's been, it's been really important for me to learn that and to learn when to step in and when to step back. Um, people are given callings in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to change, right? We believe in the atonement of Jesus Christ being the ultimate and eternal change agent that people are able to progress and learn and grow. And they're only able to do that if they're given the space to make the mistakes that then require change, right? So that's that's been part of my learning. And at the same time, making sure that there's some level of consistency at the ward level in terms of the direction we're going and the goals that we have and creating that accountability within ward council to follow up and to check and to report You know those principles that we learn in the temple as well. So not getting in the way has been a work in progress that I'm still working on today. And at the same time, not assuming that someone who is called suddenly knows how to get all the answers right? Mm-hmm. And especially in an emerging part of the church, like Luxembourg, where there's a ton of first-generation members, um, not everybody knows. And, and and that's okay. And again, not wanting to overstep sometimes a leader's reaction to that type of situation might be, okay, look, let them figure it out and and we'll see in a year how they're doing. And I remember... Um, many years ago, before I was bishop, I, I remember sitting on a, a stool in a hotel, because we were meeting at a hotel at that time, and speaking with the Relief Society president at the time, who was telling me that it's been months since she last had a catch-up with her bishop, and how difficult it was for her to not have that dialogue. So, something that, that I decided to put in place really early as bishop is monthly one-on-ones with your respective person and, and what counsel you look after. So for myself, that would be really Society President, Young Women's President. For my first counselor, it's Elders Corner. For my second counselor, it's Primary and Sunday School. And the monthly one-on-one is a chance to catch up. It's a chance to hear what's going on, what the issues are. It's a chance for the ward officer to feel heard and to feel validated. But I tell you what, having those monthly one-on-ones have saved us so many heartaches because typically our reaction as members of the church is to suffer in silence, right? If somebody offends you, rarely is our reaction. Okay. Let's talk to that person and figure it out. Usually it's, I'm going to take it. I'm going to hate that person silently. And then eventually, hopefully I'll forget about it and, and we'll just move on. And, What these monthly one-on-ones have forced is a behavior of accountability, as well as just an openness and transparency. Of course, it doesn't always work and some members still don't always feel comfortable, but it gives an opportunity to stop it in its tracks before it gets too far. right? And that's also in terms of the bishopric, because sometimes the bishopric might say something that's misinterpreted, taken the wrong way, or just not the best thing that they could have said at the time. And members might grab hold of that and, and and it stops them from maybe trusting in the bishopric or whatever it might be. These are opportunities that we have to stop that before it festers and before we let Satan, you know, plant enough seeds to suddenly derail the work of the Lord. So that's been one mechanism that we've put in play in place in order to force a more open dialogue and to stop people from avoiding the tough topics, right? we need to avoid avoiding the tough topics (laughs) and be okay with being a little bit uncomfortable sometimes to be okay with ambiguous situations and more than anything to be okay with struggling in your calling. Right. If you're struggling, it usually means that you're going through a period of growth. And that usually means that Heavenly Father is just waiting for you to reach out to him so that he can sustain you through the atonement of Jesus Christ. In other words, it means you're doing it right and a lot of the time our reaction is to avoid that struggling and to run back to our comfort zone and to want to stay there because that's where we feel best right it's where things are happy so these types of of mechanisms that we put in place to hold people a little bit more accountable but to give them a voice and to, to make sure that we're not missing the bigger problems have been really great and it's allowed us to progress i think as a ward at a at a quicker rate than if we didn't have them in place
0: yeah man so much there so i uh One follow-up I have is with these, you know, the monthly one-to-ones with, with the organizational leaders, right? Like the, that's something I did and I, I've had the same success. Like it was just awesome. And I, I recommend that, every leader, especially bishops do this. The pitfall I see people fall into is they often make them dependent on whether they have something to talk about. And because oftentimes you meet, so you know once a month, after a few months, you sort of feel like, well, we kind of talked through the big issues. I think I'm okay this month. And next month, I think I'm okay with this month, but don't make it contingent on whether you have something to talk about. Just simply sit down. If it's a three minute meeting, great. Yeah. But what I found the moment you sit down and start talking, maybe you start to shoot the breeze or, you know, in the beginning, and then you find some things to talk with, but most importantly, you've connected one-to-one with that individual. They feel supportive, supported, they feel heard, and they're ready to, to return to battle on your team and, and do their part, knowing that the, their leader always has a listening ear on what they're struggling with or what they're experiencing, right?
1: Yeah. And, and if, if, the, if the only thing you accomplish in that conversation is simply ministering to a person in the ward who is clearly sacrificing a lot to serve others, what a great blessing that moment is. Yeah. You know, I, I had a bishopric member a while ago say, say to me, you know, yeah, so-and-so is doing great in their organization. Everything is good. They send me an email every month and they give a report. And, and I, I remember having a conversation saying, okay, that's great. But did you know that they were going through this, this, and this? And the Bishopric member said, no, I I actually didn't know that. And I said, okay, let's remember what the one-on-ones are actually for. It's not just about getting a report of the activities that were done or, you know, different people who had moved into their organization. It's about showing your love to them and giving them a place to speak and to feel heard and to have a bishopric member reach out and care. You know, if, if we're looking at the church in any type of organizational structure, if the bishopric can focus on youth and focus on making sure that each of the ward officers are Okay, that they're feeling heard and and they're able to run their organization, it saves the bishopric a ton of the work that needs to then happen within those organizations, right? And the way that the brethren have restructured those organizations a few years ago is trying to teach us that, right? It's Mm -hmm. trying to teach us to have autonomy within a Relief Society presidency and within an elders' quorum presidency so that they Run the adults of the ward, they look after those types of needs. It's been a hard thing to learn, but that is where we as a bishopric need to be trying to force that, that behavioral change.
0: Yeah. So, going back to this, uh, you know, giving autonomy to the different organizations in, in a ward, I'm right on with you. I mean, we're on the same page, definitely there. The pushback I get, and this is a big problem, like on paper, it makes sense. And every leader's like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, but it's a big problem. I get the emails from, s- especially primary presidents, who are like, I, I, I don't feel like I have any say in what's going on. And it's easy to default to that the bishopric is just simply running the ward. They're picking the callings. They're picking. They're making the final call on things, and they may entertain feedback here and there. But at the end of the day, it, it can come across that they're, and quite literally, they're running the ward. And so what? The, the pushback that I often get around that concept is when it comes to callings, oh well, well, what do you do if the primary presidency wants person A, but then the relief society wants person A as well, and so I, I just we just need to make that decision, and then before you know it, you're making every calling right so how, how do you handle that in the context of callings yeah
1: its it's a tough one, and I actually had a, a pretty difficult. Uh, situation with that a few weeks ago. So it's good timing for the question, Garrett. Oh, good. <laughs> um, the, the the reality is, and I go back to the handbook again, I, I I was rereading that section of the handbook a couple of weeks ago because of the situation I was in. Um, organizational heads make recommendations to the bishop after prayerfully pondering and reflecting on the names. Right within the stewardship of a young women's president, primary president, elders, well, else corners are slightly different, but within the stewardship of, of those presidents' callings, they have the right to receive inspiration to then give to the bishop, and that's awesome and mm-hmm. probably. Eight, if not nine times out of 10, that will be what the bishopric go with because it generally makes sense. The spirit generally works through different people in the same way. Every once in a while, there will be additional context that a bishop or bishopric member will have because of the purview that a bishopric member has of the ward in its entirety. Sometimes it's worthiness, but sometimes it's other things as well. And the bishop has the responsibility to receive the revelation on calling and uh, thanking members for callings. And it's important that each ward officer, each organizational head trusts in that process, right? And not just trusts the person who happens to be bishop at that time, but trusts the mantle of the bishop, that keys are bestowed and certain rights are given with that according to god's order not just according to pride or ego or whatever that might be then interpreted as but it's it's what god is wanting to do and there are times where member uh, leaders or organizational leaders might have an opinion and they might feel very passionately about that opinion they may even say this is revelation that i've received and It's important at that time to help correct where there might be falsehoods, do it in a loving way, obviously, but to help teach what stewardship means that the Lord has an order and an organization not to, not to belittle anyone or to make anybody feel less important, but because that's the way God set it up. And if you're receiving revelation outside of your stewardship, then there may be a misunderstanding somewhere and it's okay because everyone isn't perfect and sometimes we do misunderstand things. And by the way, maybe you giving that recommendation to the bishop about a certain person allowed for a conversation to happen that allowed for amazing ministering and that was the only way that God could have allowed that to happen and that's why he set that up. And that's great. You know, Recognize that for what it is and the the, the role that you played in God doing his greater work and and accept that as happiness, right? And accept that as being a tool in the hands of the Lord. It's when sometimes we let pride or evil ego dominate those types of approaches and those types of feelings, that suddenly things become much more complicated than they ever needed to be. And then it it doesn't become a question of listening to the spirit, but more so, what do I want versus what do you want? And that takes away from, from the spirit of God. It takes away from what he's trying to build. And there are times where as a leader, you have to help somebody recognize where they may need to change where they may need to repent in that thinking and it's hard and it's very easy for people to get offended and sometimes you even have to use your counselors in a place where maybe it's a little bit too delicate for you as a bishop to do that but that's okay because you can delegate certain keys and responsibilities to your counselors in the bishopric that's the whole point of having counselors um, but it's not easy but more than anything I've learned, and I don't know if this is a bad thing to say, but I've learned to be okay with people disagreeing with me, right? Or, or maybe even being offended by something that I said very much out of love, but it hurt because sometimes truth hurts, you know? And I think first year Bishop Lewis... I had a hard time with that, right? And, I, and I've heard you say many times that as a, as a member of the stake presidency, you would tell new bishops, you know, 20% of the ward is going to hate you. There's nothing that you can do to stop that. That's yeah. just the reality. I wanted to prove you wrong, right? But I've, I've now <laughs> repented and learned that that's, that's probably a true principle. And as a leader, you sometimes have to be okay knowing that you did the right thing, but it's going to take a while and maybe even an eternity for somebody else to recognize that and to not let that keep you up at night right? To be able to still get up the next day and focus and focus on your family when you need to, and then try and love other people and not suddenly change the way that you work with people because you're scared of making someone else upset. It's a hard thing and it doesn't come naturally to people until they're in a leadership position to actually learn how to do that. But it's so important. And, and that's where sometimes, you know, we need to show empathy as leaders, but then also empathy to leaders. And, and there's a two way street there, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lewis, this has been fantastic. I'm uh, just looking to book a, a plane ticket to Luxembourg. So I'm coming to visit. Hopefully that's okay.
1: Hey, so, you're welcome. <laughs> you can give a talk as well. I'll set you up. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> just tell me what Sunday I'll be there. Um, <laughs> the, the, the last question I have for you is you reflect on your time serving as, as bishop or in any leadership capacity. How has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ?
1: Yeah, it's a question I've heard many times to other people on your podcast. Um, I think to be a leader in the church means to try and walk the steps as Christ walked them, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to replicate our master in that context. And I think every once in a while, especially as a bishop, you're put in a position where you very much represent Jesus Christ you know, whether it's different councils where you're helping members make changes in their lives or when you're doing temple recommend interviews or whatever it might be, you're very much representing Jesus Christ. And for little glimpses, little moments, you begin to understand Christ from a very real setting and and what he must have felt or how he must have, have been when he was trying to help people come closer to his father. So for me, being a leader and the church is one of those it's one of those life-changing opportunities where if you if you give yourself to the calling in terms of trying to be worthy trying to follow the spirit and trying to represent Jesus Christ it changes you forever so i've i've learned who my brother is in a different context in this calling than my last calling. And from that calling to the one before, because every time I try and get a little bit closer to the source, and I think as a bishop, it's it's one of those special callings where you're asked to represent him in different settings. And knowing, knowing what it means to look at a member's eyes and to see them not as lewis sees them but to see them how christ sees them to see them how heavenly father sees them there are certain keys i think where sometimes that's that's necessary in order to to help somebody move forward and those are moments that i will i will hang on to for the eternities and and for me that has been absolute tender mercy as a bishop where they you have all that stress all that frustration all of those difficult things every once in a while you have that celestial experience where christ is at the core of it and you get that little bit closer to him
0: And that concludes this How I Lead interview. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I would ask you, could you take a minute and drop this link in an email, on social media, in a text, wherever it makes the most sense, and share it with somebody who could relate to this, this experience. And this is how we develop as leaders, just hearing what the other guy's doing, trying some things out, testing, adjusting for your area. And uh, that's where great leadership's discovered, right? So we would love to have you uh, share this with uh, somebody in this calling or a related calling. And that would be great. And also, if you know somebody, any type of leader who would be a fantastic guest on the How I Lead segment, reach out to us. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Maybe send this individual an email letting them know that you're going to be suggesting their name for this interview. We'll reach out to them and uh, see if we can line them up. So again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. And there you can submit all the information and let us know. And maybe they will be on a future How I Lead segment on the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the and only true and living Church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must
1: face up with boldness and courage and ability.